Hi, I'm Cheryl Prashker, and this is FolkPod, the podcast where we'll hear from some of the most prolific and talented musicians who I'm lucky enough to call friends. They'll share their stories about music as a way of life, what folk music means to them, and maybe even play us a tune. So let's jump right in, shall we? This week's guest is Tracy Grammer, singer-songwriter, fiddler, actor, writer, and best known for being one half of the great duo with the late Dave Carter. Tracy continues to tour solo and along with other artists such as Jim Henry. Welcome, Tracy Grammer. Hi, Tracy. Hey, Cheryl. How are you doing? I'm great. I really appreciate you doing this. I'm so excited to chat with you. Well, me too. We haven't talked in like a whole pandemic's worth of time. (laughs) It's true, actually, although gotten to see what each other's been doing online, which is nice. And I know there's so much that you've been doing that I'm going to ask you about. But I have an interesting question for you. I know you've done so many interviews. I'm wondering, have you ever gotten to chat about just yourself? Or do folks always want to know about Dave Carter first? (laughs) Well, Cheryl, have you ever been to one of my shows? Because (laughs) it's all about me all the time. (laughs) You know, with the release of Low Tide in 2018, I did get more opportunities to kind of focus on songwriting and my inspirations and my upbringing as a musician. But certainly prior to that, from 2002 forward, it was all about Dave and You know, I kind of did that. Like, I wanted to talk about Dave. I felt like he died at the age of 49 years old, didn't get enough time here. I was just trying to stretch that out and keep the story going, Mm. which I felt was part of my job as the surviving partner of our little duo. Fair enough. But there's so much I'd love to find out about you. Some stuff I know, some stuff our fans know. And of course, I'm hoping that there's a whole new group of people out there who just absolutely don't know anything about you. So I'm hoping to introduce you to them. So I'm going to start at the beginning. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Southern California, actually. Uh, I was born in Florida, but when I was about three, I guess, we moved to Orange County to El Toro. And I grew up in El Hmm. Toro and Laguna Hills. It's all about 15 minutes from Laguna Beach. Ooh, Pretty nice part of the world. Yeah. Nice. Wow. I actually didn't know that. Oh, beautiful there. So I know there was music for you growing up in the house, but when did you actually pick up the violin for the first time? I picked up the violin when I was nine. There were two ladies named Jan who lived on opposite ends of our Hmm. neighborhood, and one of them played in the Long Beach Symphony and just happened to have a spare violin around, and the other one gave lessons. And so I was pretty well set up. It was a pretty awesome situation for me. Did your folks decide or did you think it was a cool instrument? I'm trying to remember. I seem to remember Jambo Jika standing in our living room, or maybe it was her living room and we were over at her house, but she was playing and I was just awestruck. I think just watching her, I was like, I want to try that. So you're classically trained, am I correct? Yeah, That is correct. I studied with Jan Jensen for a number of years and then went up through school orchestras and then local like Mm -hmm. regional orchestras, honor orchestras, things like that. And I always had a private teacher. Did you ever think about moving forward, going further on into classical music? You know, I did. When I got to UC Berkeley, I tried out for chamber groups because I've always loved small ensemble stuff. Okay. And I didn't get in. And they said, well, would you like a spot in our orchestra? And I was like, the orchestra with 200 people? No, thank you. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> oh, seriously? Yeah. You didn't do it. I didn't do it. And as I was rehearsing for my audition for the chamber groups, someone on my dorm floor came by and wrote a note on my door that said, no more violin. <laughs> and so... <laughs> 
I was so spineless that um, and so easily swayed. Oh no! That the love of my life, my violin, I just stuck it in the closet for like nine <gasps> years. Oh my goodness! Yeah, I was heartbroken. Oh. I didn't get into chamber groups. I didn't want to be in the symphony, and then someone didn't like it. One person oh. on my floor. I don't even know who it was. Oh no! You were traumatized. I was totally traumatized. There's a reason to go into therapy just for that. Oh, my God. (laughs) Okay, so what were you studying at UC Berkeley? Well, when I first got there, I wanted to study psychology, and then I decided I wanted to study biology. And then I was like, "Mm." I bounced around a lot. I really didn't have an idea. And part of that is because I grew up in a family business. Okay, My parents made baby bedding, and they had a pretty successful business making baby bedding and selling it all over the world. And I really thought all my life that I was just going to grow up and be in charge of Gramco. That's what it was called. Okay, Not to be confused with Graco who makes the strollers, okay? Okay. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, people get excited. They're like, what, what? I'm like, no, Gramco, you've never heard of it. (laughs) (laughs) And so I really didn't give much thought to what I would do with a college education. And so I got to Berkeley, and frankly, Berkeley was too big for me. You know, 30,000 students, I should have gone to a smaller school. I mean, of course, there's something exciting about being on the Berkeley campus. So much history has been made there. Right. It's just crackling with activism, and it's so interesting and so culturally diverse. You know, I loved being there, but I was lost, you know, so I bounced around and the advisors were like, you need to decide on a major. <laughs> it's like my junior year. And so I look over my transcript in my English, all my English classes, I have A's. And so I'm like, well, I guess I'm an English major, <laughs> you know, might as well stick with my strengths. <laughs> I wanted to be a primate anthropologist. I wanted to do fossil digs. Like I had so many things that I was interested in, but wow, I ended up being an English major and focusing on Native American women's literature, which was great. Not totally practical, but... (laughs) There's a whole other podcast discussion right there. Did you ever actually work in the field after that or not really? Not even a little. No. Do you regret that? No, no. I didn't expect to do anything with my degree. Right. Because it took me eight and a half years to get this BA. (laughs) So (laughs) I was determined because I was the first person in my immediate family to go to college. My mom didn't go. My dad had gone to community college, but I was like, I'm getting this degree. However long it takes. Yeah, but I didn't have like a plan for what would happen after. Right. Did you go back to the family business after that or no? No. What ended up happening is my parents actually divorced when I was 17. My dad took off and he left my mom the business. My dad was sort of the people person in the business Hmm. and my mom was the production manager. She handled getting everything made and moved out. Sure. But the problem is that any textile industry, it's like a fashion industry. It's very trendy. That was not really my mom's forte. Like she didn't have her finger on the pulse of what was hip at all. You know? Okay. <laughs> and so it just kind of got stale. It fell behind, you know, and we didn't have that charismatic person out front to really sell it. Eventually, my mom sold it to her friend. That was the end of that. Oh, dear. Yeah. Oh, that's a shame. It's fine. Okay. (laughs) I mean, I don't know if it's a fast forward kind of thing, but how did you end up in Portland? There's a Dave, but it's not Dave Carter. Right. That is sort of the bridge between Berkeley and Portland. He played guitar. He wrote songs. He was really great. He was dating the roommate of one of my best friends. They broke up. Years went by. People said, 
Dave and Tracy, you guys ought to try playing some music together. But of course, I had closeted my violin at that point. <laughs> so there's no music at that point at all in your life? Not really doing any music. I was doing other things. I had a staff job at the university. That, that was the one smart thing that I did hmm. because I didn't really have money to pay for my education. My parents cut me off after the first year. And so I got a legit staff job under a great boss who said, just keep taking classes. The university will pay two thirds of it. Just keep going and work as much as you can. And so I worked in summer sessions as a graphic designer and a uh, registration supervisor. And And when I wasn't working, I was taking like extension classes in pastels and ceramics and just exploring, just having fun. But I wasn't doing any music. And so... We met, we got together, we jammed a little bit. Next thing you know, we got a band. Next thing you know, we're going out. Because <laughs> that's what you do when you get in a band. <laughs> no, it's not what you do when you get in a band for some of us. <laughs> Dang it, Cheryl, it's what you do. If you didn't do that, you missed out. And so, yeah, so what happened was he was an environmental engineer specializing in water. Okay, as you do. Portland has a lot of water. And they needed someone to come up and take some water samples in the sewers. <laughs> and they picked him. Oy. Yeah. So he went on a temporary assignment. We were definitely together by then. And he invited me up to visit. And I just fell in love with Portland. Came back to Berkeley. And I decided, you know, I got to get out of here. <laughs> yeah. And where am I going to go? And hmm. yeah. there's a whole story about a premonition I had, kind of a visitation I had in a pizza parlor when I was... <laughs> With him on the last night of that visit, where I kind of heard a voice that told me that something special was going to happen for me in Portland, or that I would meet someone in Portland, Oregon, Hmm. in a particular quadrant of the city. Wow. Yeah. And so when I went back to Berkeley, I just started packing my stuff and kind of slowly getting ready to go. I think, vaguely, I was going there to be with Dave, who had by that time officially moved and was living in Portland and part of the music scene there. But I also was like, what was that voice about? I just had this feeling that something really great was going to happen in Portland. And so I went. I didn't have a job. I didn't have a place to live. I just sort of... (laughs) That's amazing. Actually, it's ridiculous. But that's what I did. So (laughs) That's a great story. So were you playing music in Portland before you met the other Dave? Well, what happened was we had that band for a little while with Dave number two. We'll call him Dave number two and Dave Carter would be Dave number three. Right. Okay. We won't talk about Dave number one. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Save him for another day. Okay. So Dave number two was definitely doing music and I would like tag along. I'd play the violin. I'd play a little keyboard. I'd sing along. Is that sort of the first time you sang backup for somebody or had you done that before? Let me think. The only other person I ever sang with before that in public was this guy named Curtis Coleman. And this was kind of during sort of the tail end of my college days. Curtis Coleman used to be with the new Christy Minstrels. You're kidding. No. And he was a a friend of my dad's. Whoa. You know what? We somehow always segue into what we think the word folk means. And I don't think it gets any more folky than the new Crispy Minstrels. <laughs> yes, that's how Curtis was. But my brother and I would just go see every single gig he would play around town. And they were just little gigs, little cafe, a little restaurant. Nobody there, maybe five people, maybe 10 people. Hmm. At some point, 
He heard these tapes that I had made in a tourist booth in San Francisco my freshman year. <laughs> At Pier 39, they used to have a thing called music tracks. Oh, yeah. And you would go in. Right. You'd sing along with the hits. <laughs> There'd be a lead vocal, you know, in the thing that you were hearing, but it would be tucked back. So something to sing along to. Sure, sure. And so you make your tape, you pay your $10, then they play it over the loudspeakers so everyone can hear it. <laughs> and then you take it Sorry. home. <laughs> yeah. I got hooked on doing that. Like, I did it once with all my friends. Right. But like after that, I would go across the bay, like secretly. I would take these secret trips. I did Leather and Lace. I did Let It Be. I did all these Ooh. other songs, you know, I would make these tapes. And so so for Christmas that year, I gave them to my my mom and my dad as presents. Like, here's my recordings. Aww. And my dad showed it to Curtis. And so Curtis was like, you can sing. And I'm like, I don't know. You know, and so he surprised me at one of the gigs. It was the summer when, do you remember that song, More Than Words? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I was going to try to sing it, but I won't do that yeah. to everybody. <laughs> me neither. <laughs> People were like, more than words, more than words. And he's like, well, that's a duet. He's like, I can't sing that by myself, but maybe Tracy could get up and sing it with wow. me. Wow. Who wants to see Tracy get up and sing it with me? And everybody goes, yay. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> that's such a great story. And so I go up there and I remember, I, you know, I still hadn't learned how to control my blushing. So I right. was just red, you know, and sweating <laughs> yeah, and like sounded like a goat. It was like an out of body experience, you know, but I did it. And then every night after that, my brother and I would show up and I'd be like, please pick me, please pick me. Oh my God. Me. That's so cute. Tracy. I was just hoping he would call at me. And then I'm like, our song, let's do our song. Oh, that's how I spent a summer. And so, yeah, I never ever knew how you started singing. I love that. Modesto was big for me. So that happened in Modesto. And then the other thing that happened in Modesto is that I started doing karaoke also with my brother and these two other guys named Clay and Marshall. Huh. We'd go in there. Usually it was just us. And I would sing the same song every time. It was always the Judd's Love is Alive. <laughs> but then Marshall decided he wanted to do duets. So he wanted to do Up Where We Belong. Whoa. I was too nervous to do this. So luckily it was a bar and my brother was well-versed and so were the boys. And they're like, here, try this kamikaze and see if this helps. And I'm like, what do you do with it? And they're like, just drink it. Oh, and I'm like, sip God. it? <laughs> yeah. They're like, no, throw it back. Just chug it. I'm like, really? Ah, I'll choke. And my brother's like, don't be a wuss. So then that became a thing for a while. Like we'd go down for karaoke and kamikazes and I would sing my one song and I would get like super drunk and then we would stumble home, which was like a quarter mile away, you know. Oh, my goodness. It's funny because you sang back up with that other Dave and then you sang back up with Dave number three. But nobody really knows where you got your start singing. And It's been a colorful road. I'll say that. <laughs> How about guitar? Like, when did you ever pick up the guitar first? Probably the earliest picture of me holding a guitar. I must be like four my dad played guitar, so I was always drawn to it. We always had guitars in the house. Oh, okay. But he never showed me anything on the guitar. Like, I don't remember him ever, like, you know, standing over me going, put your hand here. But we had this thing. We'd get the neighborhood kids to come over. We'd get out the songbooks. And we would just sing. You know, we have like little hoot nannies in, in my parents' bedroom on the big bed. You know, we'd all be sitting there bouncing around and <laughs> singing like Hot August Night. and yeah. Yeah. Take me home, country roads, and puff the magic dragon, you know? That's it. That's how I learned. I learned from those books, my mother's John Denver books and Neil Diamond books. I know we have Neil Diamond in common, and anybody out there who's listening, if you have yeah. a problem with that. That's right. That's all I'm going to say. What was your favorite John Denver song to sing? 
Oh, to sing. Well, I actually love The Eagle and the Hawk. Do you know that one? I do know that one. It goes very high. It's hard to do. I would sing with him. I would sing with the record. Yeah. And also Calypso. Me too. That one I knew on guitar. Me too. Really? Yes, I'm singing it in my head right now. Oh my God. <laughs> Me too. Me too. <laughs> I Calypso. I sing for your spirit. That's it. Yes. That's very cool. It's one of my favorite. And I mean, you know, people know it, but only the diehards really know it. I wonder what it is about that song. It's just like such a sweeping. Exactly. Are you waving right now as I am? <laughs> yeah, I was. I was sort of conducting yeah. right there. <laughs> Thank God this is not video. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever see John Denver in concert? Because I got to say that was something. If you've ever seen him. My first concert was John Denver. I was in fourth grade. Shut up. I knew all the words. Of course, me too. Yeah. Yeah. Fourth grade. Oh, I digress. <laughs> so question. Did you ever actually attempt to write a song before this whole last bunch of years? Like, did you ever dabble in writing when you were younger? Oh, yes. Hmm. I started trying to write songs with Dave number two. Okay. I think that's when I really got interested in it because he was such a great songwriter. And I think I was... Just sort of piggybacking on that, like, hey, I do that. You know, I'd always written poetry. I'd been keeping a journal since I was about nine also. Wow. You know, always with a pen in the hand. And I think my mom said that I used to get carrots out of the fridge and write on the wall. I've just been scribbling all my life. Getting a visual of that. Yeah. Poor mom. Yeah. In second grade, I think they papered over my desk because I just kept writing on it with a pencil and getting really dirty. Uh, obviously, you've kept all that, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, you're beginning writing? Oh, yeah. That's cool. I've been actually been going through them because I'm working on a memoir. Yes. It's pretty interesting to see what younger Tracy had to say. But the songwriting thing, yeah. one important thing that happened when I was with Dave Number 2 is that he hooked me up with some recording equipment. So I got a four track and a couple of oh, mics and headphones. That's cool. And a reverb unit. <laughs> <laughs> because that's critical. Hello, 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 hello. Yes, it is critical. That's right. And I started making four tracks. Those probably started happening in like 1993, 94. <laughs> so I actually am planning like over the next two weeks or so to get those out and just listen to them and have a nice chuckle. Wow. Yeah. So obviously I'm going to be sharing this with people who've never heard of you. And so... I will ask, tell us a story about how you met Dave number three. Yeah. Gosh, I just submitted this chapter to the writer's group. <laughs> it was really fun seeing their reactions. So Dave number three, Dave Carter, I'm in Portland. I haven't been there long, maybe a month. And I mentioned that Dave number two was like really involved in the music scene. So we were going to a lot of open mics and other people's concerts and putting on little shows and stuff. And so on Tuesday nights in Portland, Oregon, at that time, the Portland Songwriters Association would hold a showcase night at a place called the Buffalo Gap. And so Dave signed us up for a slot there. Everybody gets up and plays a couple of songs. And so we show up and it's kind of a crazy scene and people are mostly drinking, you know, and they're not really like <laughs> listening. Like you, you get up on stage and you do your couple of songs under the bright lights, you know, and the big sound system. And people kind of clap and people kind of laugh at your jokes. But it wasn't really like the focus, which was really different from the open mics, actually, where right. people would watch you so intently that it was unnerving. Right. <laughs> <Like>, okay. <laughs> but I was really nervous. I was feeling shy. That was kind of an issue between me and Dave. Number two is that he was very gregarious. And he's like, why are you so shy? Why are you so quiet? I'm like, because I don't know anybody, you know, <laughs> like, I don't know what I'm doing here. But I love to play. So that's why I was there. And toward the end of the night, Somebody walks in, dressed up like a cowboy, cowboy hat, jean jacket, Merle Haggard t-shirt, this 
like belt buckle, the size of a small <laughs> dinner plate. He's got cowboy boots on and he's carrying this big giant jumbo guitar and comes in through the swinging doors of the Buffalo Gap there and he's making his way around the room and all of this cacophony and stuff starts to settle down as he walks in and I see him, he's kind of nodding at people and kind of smiling. And when I say cowboy, like people might think of like a swagger and a mustache and some leathery skin, but we're not talking about quite that kind of cowboy. (laughs) Not quite that tough. Just think like slender, super clean cut, upright, graceful even, making his way through the room. So he gets up to the stage and starts taking out his guitar. And by the time he starts tuning it up, everybody's in their seats and they're all quiet. And I'm like, what is going on here? You know, and Dave number two leans over to me and he goes, that's Dave Carter. And I just look at him like, so, you know, I don't know the (laughs) difference. And I say, well, what's with the cowboy outfit? Like, you know, why is he dressed like that? Nobody dresses like that in Portland. (laughs) Like if we were in Central Oregon, that would be different. But, you know, even I know just a month in that that's not really what we're wearing in Portland. Right. And Dave number two leans in again and he says, well, he sounds just like Lyle Lovett. You're going to love this guy. He looked like Lyle Lovett to me sometimes. Yeah, he had the crooked grin, you know? Yeah, yeah. So I'm like, okay, okay. I was really into Lyle Lovett right then and I just have a long-standing love for country music. So standing next to Dave Carter was a young woman named Susan Martin. She was like in this little jumper and these big clunky shoes and she had this long brown hair and she had a guitar on. She was going to sing along. And so they start the song. The first line is his mama was a Cherokee princess or so it was said. And I was like, oh, Native American woman. <laughs> like, That's what I studied. That's what I did. That's me. That's my story. <laughs> and I was so excited because I felt this connection like nobody had been singing about or telling any kind of story like that. And so I thought that's cool. And then in the next line, he goes, and his daddy was a Seminole rebel with a price on his head. And I was like, Seminoles? I was born in Florida, you know, and I have this Florida State Seminole sweatshirt back at home. And I'm just like, this is too weird, you know. And he just goes on to sing this song about this young Native man, kid really, kind of fighting the system, you know, big business is coming in, they're tearing down the trees and stuff, and this kid is not having it. So he's standing up against the law, as such as it is, trying to protect his land. And Dave just spins out this beautiful, poetic, heart-wrenching song about the plight of this young man. And by the time he's done, (laughs) I'm so sold. (laughs) And she's singing along and they've got these beautiful harmonies going. And I'm like, how do you get to be Susan Martin? You know, like, how do you get that job? Because that's the kind of music I want to make. And I just really had this feeling just as Dave Carter was finishing up his little set that my music making with Dave number two was coming to a close. It's like that kind of sealed the deal. Hmm. Because I realized that even though Dave number two's music was great, it's poppy, it was quirky, it was very Beatles influenced. It was interesting, but it, it didn't talk to my soul. It didn't really tell me a story that my heart could resonate with. And Dave Carter had. And so I was feeling very inspired by the end of his set. Just wanted to go home and grab my guitar and play. You know, do you ever get that feeling like you hear somebody who It's just really great. And then you just want to play all night. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I can imagine that he would do that for you. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. 
Did you talk that night? I can't remember. Yeah. So that's what happened. We're all kind of making our way. Everybody's leaving. Everybody's getting their gear and getting out of there and kind of this slow moving march toward the swinging doors on our way out. I was just looking at the ground. And next thing I know, like somebody kind of crashes into me and, and it's Dave Carter's jumbo <laughs> Taylor guitar case crashing into my little violin case. Great. Of course, he apologizes and introduces himself and I introduce myself and he says, hey, you, you got a violin there. And I go, yeah. <laughs> he says, you want to be in my band? <laughs> <laughs> he showed up late. He didn't hear me play. He didn't know anything about me. But I said, yes. <laughs> you know, it's amazing because the same thing happened to Bob Dylan with Scarlett Rivera. Is that right? Absolutely. Yep. He saw her on the street in the village. He stopped his car, like screeched to a halt and said, is that a violin in your case? And she said, yes. Why? You know, that kind of thing. Like, who are you and why are you stopping your car and why are you talking to me? Of course, she knew who he was. And he said, well, I'm going to the recording studio. Would you like to come with me? Wow. Obviously, I've heard your story first. And when I heard Scarlett's story about how she met Bob Dylan, I immediately thought of you and Dave. That's crazy. And think about those worlds colliding like that, that not only changes the people's lives that are involved, but the course of music, especially in our folk community. So it's quite amazing. Well, I'm kind of stuck on the idea that there's tracks <laughs> that we fall into, like the songwriter finds a violinist track. <laughs> there's that. Yeah. It's so curious to me that that's almost identical. Well, it is. I don't know about Dave, but Bob had never played with a violinist or fiddle player before. He heard it in his head that that sound would work. Yeah. Dave Carter had written some violin parts, but he didn't have a violin player to work with. That was one of the things he asked me that night was whether I read. Mm. And I said, oh, yeah, like, because people would ask me to jam and I hated to jam. Well, most classical musicians don't like to improvise or jam, but certainly don't mind reading a part, obviously. Yeah. So he's like sheet music. And I'm like, right on. <laughs> <laughs> and it was the violin part for Kate and the Ghost of Lost Love, that beautiful violin melody in there. Mm. So it wasn't too long until I went to the first rehearsal. There was a band for a while. It was a five-piece band. Great people. So-so music, you know? Some original and some covers or? Mostly original. I did find a set list from a gig that we did in a Mexican restaurant <laughs> called Casa Maria, which cracks me up to this day. He had, you're the reason God made Oklahoma on the set list. <laughs> That's where he was from. Yes, yes. You know, I didn't know him that well at that point. And I was kind of like, this is a little strange. Like, I'm supposed to sing this about him? Like, what? I don't even know you. <laughs> we had like Small Town Saturday Night, Hal Ketchum's song. Oh, wow. Okay. So you guys then took it to a duo? Yeah. And then recorded pretty quickly? Yeah. Well, what happened was he entered a bunch of song contests. He'd been getting some little awards like locally. Mm-hmm. But then he entered the Wildflower Performing Songwriter Contest in Richardson, Texas. And then I sent off a tape to Kerrville. He didn't know I had done it. <laughs> oh. And then he was a finalist. You went together, right, to Kerrville? We did. Yeah. And that sort of started the flow of songwriting awards and 
festival awards and stuff like that, I'm assuming? Yeah, we just did three. We did Wildflower, Kerrville, and Napa. And then he's like, that's it. That was enough. And at that point, people were like, hey, you guys have a recording? And we didn't have one yet. So we got busy working on that. We made When I Go in my kitchen, basically. Incredible. Yeah. (laughs) Come, lonely hunter, chieftain and king, I will fly like the falcon when I go Bear me, my brother, under your wing I will strike, fill like lightning when I go I will bellow like the thunder drum Invoke the storm of war A twisting pillar spun in dust and blood Up from the prairie floor I will sweep the foe before me Like a gale out on the snow And the wind will long recount the story Reverence and glory when I go So for those who are listening who've never heard of Dave Carter and Tracy Grammer's music, you must look them up. Well, the albums, there's only a few. I highly recommend every single one of them. Well, thank you. I can tell you something really cool that happened recently. I got a letter from a woman who lives in Kerrville, and she said that she wanted the sheet music for When I Go, because she's making plans to sing this for her partner when he dies. I didn't ask, but, you know, it sounds like, okay. And she's like, have y'all ever been to Kerrville? (laughs) Well, this is what she told me. She said, I came up singing along with Judy Collins. She's also a singer. Like, she didn't sing, like, on stage with Judy Collins, but just, you know what I mean? Okay. Like, we sang along with John Denver. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And she came to When I Go through Judy Collins. You're kidding. The Judy Collins and Willie Nelson cover of it. She didn't know anything about us. And I was like, wow. As a matter of fact, we had been to Kerrville. And that was one of the winning songs. So good choice. (laughs) As a matter of fact, when I send you the music, it's going to be very hard to play. But good luck. (laughs) I mean, obviously, it's an incredible song. And you don't play it. You don't play it out, do you? Occasionally. There's some songs that I can't play every night. Sure. It's not really an emotional thing. It's not like, oh, I can't handle it. Right. I could do that. But it's just, if it doesn't fit with the tenor of the show, then yeah, yeah, yeah. Then I leave it out. Understood. So after Dave passed away, and for those who don't know, so unfortunately Dave passed away in 2002? Yes. A week before Falcon Ridge, am I right? That's right. And you guys were scheduled to play Falcon Ridge and Philly that year. I was very much looking forward to seeing you both there. Mm. Yeah. So after Dave Carter passed away, you continued to tour and play his music. Now, you were singing a lot of the songs towards the end, were you not with Dave? I was singing more, but I wouldn't say I was singing half. Okay. It was still mainly Dave. And then you decided to continue to tour and play his music because at that point you had not written anything on your own. Right. Until the Verdant Mile. Right. All I remember thinking about the Verdant Mile is this is just so incredible. (laughs) This cannot be the very first song she ever wrote. That's crazy talk. But it is, isn't it? (laughs) That's so nice. That's so nice of you. I didn't want to burn like this so close to the bone. 
No muscle left to carry this black bag of stones. It's a black bag. I remember listening to it and not being even able to breathe until it was over because I just wanted to hear every word and every turn and every phrase. It's one of my favorite songs, so I still cannot believe it's your first song. Well, thank you. Well, you should see the scribbling for that one. There's so many verses that didn't make the cut. Yeah. Really? And it took me a long time to finish. Like, there's a line at the end, I cannot bring the bird in from the field Mm -hmm. or make an angel come around. Took me forever to get that. And then when I had it, I was like, okay, that wraps it up. You know, I really struggled with the last verse for, I'm going to say, like four, five, six months. I just couldn't find it. I miss you like I love the sound of blackbirds in the trees. I sit alone and wish that maybe one of you would visit me. But no matter how much seed I hang, what prayer I call out, I cannot bring that burden from the field. Actually, is a place that I started to think of as the Verdant Mile. <laughs> it was the walk between my townhouse, the townhouse that we used to share, and the strip mall <laughs> where the Starbucks and the 24-hour fitness were there <laughs> in Tigard, Oregon, where we were living at the time. And there was just this little path through this green space. It would be months until I would look up and see that there were power lines. That's why this one little snatch of grass was not being developed <laughs> because everything else around us was new construction. But I would walk, you know, I'd go to the Starbucks every day to do my journaling, and then I would go to the gym to just not lose my mind, you know, and started to get the idea for the song as I was walking back and forth, just kind of contemplating the changes, contemplating the day, cussing at the sun for having the audacity to rise, you know, all that stuff that you do when you're grieving. Yeah. I mean, you were grieving not only your best friend at the time and your career, Your whole life, basically, pretty much changed overnight. Yeah, it was a lot. Definitely the career came to a screeching halt. And then the partnership, all the levels of the partnership, although, you know, some of them were already in flux because of Dave's gender dysphoria and his transitioning. That was definitely already in play and had been for a while. Which you knew about, of course, that the rest of the community did not know about at the time. That's right. It was a very small circle of people back then. And he told me in 2000. And then in 2002, it was not like it is today. People weren't talking about it. 
there were plans, you know, like how to unveil the new Dave, whoever she was going to be, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? But the fans didn't know, that's for sure. And his family didn't even know. It was all very hush-hush. When you found out, did you ever contemplate not continuing to work with him or play music with him? I never thought about not playing music, but it certainly wreaked havoc on the personal relationship. I had never even heard of such a thing. My sheltered upbringing. I was like, what? Right. What is this? Like, who are you? You know, and I really struggled. And that's that's a lot of what the memoir deals with is what the non-changing partner yeah is experiencing, or at least what I was experiencing. You know, of course, you want the person that you love more than anything in the world to do and be everything that they are, you know, and to feel at home in their skin and all of that. But on the flip side, (laughs) you're like, what about our kids? We've already named them. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's like you lost them twice. Exactly. That is exactly right, Cheryl. I was already grieving before he died. We didn't know that. We didn't. None of us. Nobody knew that. No, no one would have known that. I can't even imagine how hard that was. Well, you know, what was hard was getting on stage at Falcon Ridge after he died, because here I am with my private knowledge of how things really were. And then here's a crowd of 8,000 people cheering, crying. And looking for the shrine. And looking for this shrine tent and mourning essentially a fairy tale. Yeah. And I was very split on the inside. Hmm. I was very torn about accepting any condolences from anybody because I was like, no, 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 you don't get it. You don't get it. Hmm. It's not what you think. It's everything you think, but it's more. I couldn't articulate. And so I was really in a stuck place, you know, and then there was some things with the estate that happened that really sort of rattled me. It was a really rough time. And what I clung to was this mission. I felt I'd been called to keep singing the songs. He wasn't here to do it. And I just felt like this is the thing that I was put here to do. And so I put my foot down like nobody could get in my way. I was just going (laughs) to do it. It's amazing that you did it on behalf of the fans. I can't even thank you enough for doing it because obviously we didn't know what was going on, but we needed to have the music continue as long as it possibly could. And not lose you, too, because, I mean, if you had vanished from the scene, then we would have lost both of you. I, for one, as a fan, I'm very grateful. But I always knew that, you know, it must have been extremely difficult to continue to play his music. I would just think, how is she doing this? Yeah, I sort of say of 2003, which was the year after, right? Yeah. I get back on the road. My name for myself that year is the conductor of the grief train because I just <laughs> yeah. just like went around from town to town and yeah. it made it real for people. Like when I showed up yep. and there was no Dave there, then they could cry. Right. And so I did that. So the whole first year was like that. It was just like me showing up and, you know, processing with everybody their fresh grief huh. and my ongoing grief. And, right. you know, to say nothing of like, I also lost like several grandparents during that time. Like it was rough. Oh, boy. You didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, I'm glad you had the music and the fans. I'm hoping that that was a little bit of comfort for you. Definitely. And great friends in Portland who got me through, for sure. Good. You played Falcon Ridge the week after he passed away. You played Philly Folk Festival the week after that. And I think that's where I met you for the first time. And I was actually very shy about it. I was like, I can't do this. I can't. I can't do it. I can't go up there. No, you got to. You got to. No, I can't. I can't. I'm so shy. Seriously. And then the year after that, I was very blessed to get up on Falcon Ridge stage and play with you. So I appreciate that. You may not even remember that, but I did. That was awesome. I do. So thank you. That was quite an honor. 
I don't think we knew about Dave's transitioning even at that point. Yeah, it took me a while to start talking about it, but yeah, I did wonder, is it my story to tell? But then I realized it's definitely part of my journey, you know, is contending with a partner who yeah. who's changing genders. Like, what do you do? How do you mm-hmm. find your way? Right. But what fascinated me is just how you can see the change in Dave's songs over time. Oh, when I went back to listen to them after I found out, yeah. it is unbelievable how much he must have been talking about himself and who he thought he was as a female. Isn't it crazy? Yeah. I heard so much more in those songs after I found out. Yeah. It's amazing. Who can say how much of it was conscious? He certainly was doing a lot of personal work, you know, with counselors and things like that. And sure. obviously very interested in processing dreams. I mean, let's face it. You start with right. Snake Handling Man. <laughs> I mean, that's right. the name of the first recording is Snake Handling Man. Baby, I was born to the blood and the service of the Lord of hosts. March through the valley of the shadow of death at the bidding of the Holy Ghost. Baby, I would. Hey, baby, you know I can. Holy fire down in my belly and brimstone in my eyes. Everything that a woman might need, the need just might arise. I'm a light bringer and a soul singer. I'm a snake handling man. And there's like truck driving songs. It's very macho. Right. He would wear his long sleeves rolled up to the elbow and his forearms were just bulging, you know, and he would be doing these like wow. wicked finger picking things like so fast, the muscles, you could just see them like right. <laughs> pulsing under the skin. And I was like, wow, look at that man, you know, <laughs> whatever that means. Yeah. But then there's these soft stories about women yeah. in gardens and flowers. and Yes. We definitely lean into the goddess there toward the end. And <laughs> right. Phantom Doll, the last one that he wrote actually has a scene where like, she rises up at midnight and she's out there with all the freaks and the poets and, and they win. They win. They get their freedom. Oh, you know, it's glorious. Midnight, the struggle is over. Rise up, belly white, delicate shoulders. Outside, the poets all know her. All of her children are waiting. Beggars and wrecks alike. Junkyard lanes, Tiffany slippers click clack through the rain. Riggedy bones and sheer chiffon, dancing on the mayor's lawn in glory streams. They glide through gilded rooms, the drinks and gravely pale dragons, the wasted daughters of her. Wow. Well, your first full album of original material, Low Tide. Yes. So that also came after some heartache. I mean, I know that it did, but I have to say this is some of the most incredible pieces of music I've heard. I was actually wondering, would you actually sing the song Hold? I would love to, Cheryl. Thanks for asking. Wendy, I'm afraid I don't know what I'm made of anymore Can't make sense of all these shatterlings upon the bedroom floor There'd be no sleep in here, just blurs of sorrow through the open door Should've warned those boys about me, should've warned those boys 
never mean to, but somehow we always spill the loving cup. It's in some passionate exchange, it's in the way I don't let up. Cannot trust myself in love, seems I always fuck it up. Better warn those boys about me, better warn those boys. Cause I bruise them, everyone. There's a hole in the palm of my love. I cut them, they run. Hole in the palm of my love. My first love wouldn't tell me why he changed his mind about our plans. A vicious word I spoke to spurn the gold right off the wedding band. Kept it to himself, and now the ashes flying through my hands. Should have warned that boy about me. Andy, I'm afraid the story's gonna play out like the rest He'll take this broken bird and hold him to my hopeful heaving chest Sing the mountain down while God remains oblique and unimpressed Should've warned that boy about me As I bruise them, everyone There's a hole in the palm of my love I cut them, they run Through the hole in the palm Let's not talk about the girl I was and the wife I'll never be Let him cut the sword from underneath my tongue and set me free Say something good about me, say something good Though I bruise them, everyone There's a hole in the palm of my love I cut them, they run Through the hole in the palm of my love There's a sword under my tongue And a hole in the palm old violin to you for all those easy nights and emails and the honest talking to for every lie I told I never played a note that wasn't true it's one good thing about me the one good thing cause I bruise them everyone there's a hole in the palm of my love I cut them they run through the hole in the palm of my love There's a sword under my tongue And a hole in the palm of my love Can't save a single one With a hole in the palm That's one of my favorite songs. Absolutely one of my favorite songs that you wrote. So thank you for sharing that with everybody. 
How hard a song was that to write or did it just flow right out? My friend Andrew Calhoun, fine, fine songwriter, gave me a tip Mm -hmm. about writing to somebody. Hmm. So I was like, all right, I'll write to you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. So he's Andy. And um, when I heard it, I was like, whoa, you go, girl. (laughs) You tell him. It actually had that Philly thing. You know, you go, girl, with that snap. Oh, yeah. Oh, cool. Oh, yeah. All right. Oh, yeah. (laughs) You had your Philly on and that guy better look out. You better look out. But the thing is, Andrew and I are He's probably my best friend in the world. We're in touch every day. Like we meditate together long distance. Right. That's cool. Yeah. We're very intertwined. And he gave me that great bit of advice. And so that was the opening. That was the door into that song. I mean, not to mention all the heartache where you kind of start to realize that, oh, I'm not really good at this relationship thing. And maybe it's not them, (laughs) you know, (laughs) maybe it's time to stop blaming everybody else and just get real Uh, here in the corner and figure out what I'm doing. uh, You know, the way I wrote it, it was almost like not looking at the keyboard, but just typing. Wow, that's great. Letting things come out, you know, in the periphery. Because I find that if my eyes get attached to the page, it's too much of a commitment. I'm much freer if I'm not actually looking at the words. To me, it was a hit the minute I heard it. Is it hard to sing to this day? Like, is it hard to sing or you're just, you're out of that body experience? No, I love singing it. (laughs) I totally love singing it because the thing about that song is it's true. You know, it's very dark, but it's true. What's more liberating than singing something that's true, even if it's dark? There's always somebody in the audience, you know, they come up to you afterwards, they wait till everybody's gone and then they're like, yeah, me too. (laughs) That's my next question. I've asked everybody this question and I love it. Is there a song that either you wrote or that you do that sort of yours that surprised you? When people come up and, and say how it, it affected them or that it touched them in a certain way. Well, Hole is definitely one. And mm-hmm. the other one that you mentioned, Verdant Mile. Yeah. People come up and they tell me about their grief and that that song has helped them through. And Good Life, actually. Oh, yes. I forgot to talk to you about that one. Yeah. 20 years old, just a fitful young man with a fire in my eye. I liked a drink in my hand, kissed a pretty young girl, got a gold wedding band and a baby on the way that we didn't quite plan at all. Headed out west and such a feel-good song. I know you wrote it about your dad during a time when you actually didn't get a chance to see him before he passed away. Am I correct? That's right. Yeah. We had a difficult relationship, my dad and I. You know, he was an alcoholic, pretty abusive. And so there were several years where we just didn't talk at all. Pretty much my 20s, I think. It was just like, ah, talk to the hand. I can't deal with you. Oh, yeah. 
But gradually, once email became more of a thing, you know, everybody had it. Mm -hmm. We could send notes. We could call every now and then. I still didn't see him very often, but we reconciled. And so with Good Life, I just wanted to honor, you know, he struggled. Yeah. And he came from a long line of strugglers. So it's no surprise. Did he get to hear the song? Oh, no. No. It was after. It was a year after that I wrote it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Did he get to hear it, Cheryl? Maybe he did. Mm. Maybe he did. Maybe he did. Spirit daddy somewhere. I don't know. (laughs) Well, how has the last seven months, pandemic months, been for you musically and personally? Have you written any songs? I've written zero songs. Okay. Yeah. No, it's just not a thing that's happening right now. It's kind of too much for me to process. I think in time, I'll be able to look back on this little spell that we're having here Mm -hmm. and have something to say about it. But in the moment, I've been doing a lot of journaling. I'm in my memoir group and we've been churning out the pages this year. Yeah, you're working on memoir. Yeah. Actually, the group just decided that they wanted to stick together for a second year, which is lovely. Are they writing as well or are they just reading what you wrote? It's all part of the Pioneer Valley Writers Workshop. And we have kind of like a facilitator who organizes everything. And basically we swap writing, you know, we have partners and we swap weekly pages and then we critique. Okay. We're pretty hardcore. Like, (laughs) and it's very enlightening because I have so much stuff internalized about Dave Carter and I assume so many things. Wow. And then people read a chapter and they're like, I hate him. And I'm like, what? Wait, 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 what happened? I just, (laughs) obviously I didn't say something correctly here. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm going to guess that these people at the other end of this group don't actually know much about Dave Carter and Tracy Grammer. Some of them are familiar with the music, but they don't know the story. You know what I mean? Okay. I guess I just assumed too much or I wrote it too one-sided or they're like, how could he do that to you? And I'm like, (laughs) I never thought of it that way, that he did it to me. You know what I mean? Like, how could he betray me by not being upfront about his gender issues? Like, I don't know. It never occurred to me until they said something about it. I was like, oh, yeah. should I have been mad about that? I wasn't. I was upset about other things. So it's been interesting just in terms of framing the story mm. and figuring out what really resonates with people. And so the memoir is a big project. Yep. Jim Henry and I have been touring together since 2003, and he and I have been giving monthly live stream concerts. Those are available on YouTube, Jim Henry's YouTube page. I think you have a specific day of the month that you put those on. Am I correct? Well, we do them on a Tuesday. It's usually toward the end of the month, Yep. but it varies, you know, between the third and the fourth Tuesday. But I can say about the broadcast that Jim Henry invested quite a bit of his Hmm. pandemic cash (laughs) in nice cameras and really good sounding gear. So the live streams are really satisfying in that way. They are pretty much the best that anybody is doing out there. Let's be honest, Tracy, come on. They sound great. And they look great. He switches cameras with his foot, right? He does. (laughs) Yeah. If Tracy's got a solo, then he'll put the camera on Tracy. And you guys swap songs. Sometimes you have themes, sometimes you don't. Yeah. And he's got a plethora of guitars and it's just so awesome. So people ought to check out Tracy Grammer and Jim Henry's monthly YouTube concerts. Yeah. And I'll tell you what I love about them is that I was getting to a point with the Dave Carter material where it was like, I really wanted to move on. Mm -hmm. I felt like, okay, Judy Collins is singing the dang songs. You know, it's got traction now. (laughs) Isn't this been interesting? Because it's sort of been a reset for a lot of people and some people are trying new things. And for you guys, it is the perfect time to segue 
into more of your material and Jim's material and covers. Yeah, we had three or four shows where all we played were songs starting with the letter B. I know. Whose idea was that? We came up with that one together. (laughs) I thought, oh, they're going to run out of songs in the first 20 minutes. And no. Yeah, there's a lot of B songs out there. We called it Plan B because it's like, well, if you can't hit the road, then Plan B. Plan B. So now we're doing Alphabet Soup. (laughs) Right. It's not really Alphabet Soup, but our last show we did A through L. We just took turns running through the alphabet and we're going to do M through Z. The fact that you guys are (laughs) learning all these songs is so cool. Oh, yeah. And it's really fun, too, because we're just like whatever genre, you know, (laughs) we'll do Robbie Robertson and Taylor Swift and Gillian Welch and... (laughs) Bob Dylan, you know, we'll do anything. That's great. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Okay. I always ask this question. Tell us something crazy or silly that your fans don't know about you. Oh my gosh. Well, do they know I was a head cheerleader for five years? (gasps) I'm not laughing. (laughs) Are there pictures? Are there pictures? Cheryl, (laughs) I've saved everything. Who knew? I was a cheerleader. Yeah, I was a cheerleader. I didn't know that. For like football kind of thing or? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't a backflip kind of cheerleader. I just wanted to know how into it you got. Well, we weren't that acrobatic. We just didn't have that kind of school. Okay. I think we had one person who could maybe do a flip and a round off. (laughs) Right. It's all about the pom-poms, right? Yeah. In cheerleading, you have bases and climbers. So like the little light ones are the climbers. Right. And then people like me are bases. So I'd be like the strong person on the bottom holding someone standing on my shoulders. Right. But it was fun. We did a couple competitions. We went to some camps. Okay. All right. I loved it. That's neat. I got to say, I feel like all of the things that I ever loved to do have kind of dovetailed into a really great life. And even The difficult circumstances of my childhood, growing up with an alcoholic dad who was really quite unpredictable and violent, taught me some really good things that have come into play in my music. Like it made me a great accompanist because I learned how to watch. Hmm. I learned how to shadow. Oh, man. Yep. And the cheerleading. I get so excited about things. (laughs) You know, Dave Carter, like that's what he needed was a cheerleader, graphic designer, organized writer type who could shadow him like that's what he needed and that's what I did and like you just never know where all these random bits of your life are going to fold in but they do and it's cool it's funny because you'll say well I don't know if my life would have turned out this way or if my career would have gone this way without having met Dave Carter but I don't think his career would have been the same had he not met you definitely not no I can tell you that for a fact yeah Yeah. (laughs) When he walked into the Buffalo Gap that night, he had like this little briefcase folder thing with papers poking out. Like, I don't know what he was doing. <laughs> Did he need some help, Tracy? Did he need some help or what? He was like the nutty <laughs> professor. He needed some help. You know, so it was a perfect partnership because he was this creative force, this geyser of inspiration. Yeah. And then I was the organizing principal. I got all the press kit. Like, I just did all that stuff that needed to be done. Yeah, yeah. You know, free him up to focus on the writing. Really, it was great. Aren't we lucky in doing what we get to do, even as crazy as our world is? Like, my life has been very cool. Yep. Any chances of new Tracy Grammer music in the future? Or is that on the back burner for now? Well, there are rumors that Real Women, Real Songs might start up again. (gasps) Which means you got to get writing if you're going to participate. That's right. Actually, can you explain to everybody what that's about? Yeah. I don't remember how often you write. Weekly, man. It was weekly. So this was a challenge 
organized by a woman named Carrie Cooper. She pulled together a bunch of women songwriters. She offers a prompt or a portal, as some people like to put it. And everybody writes a song to the prompt. And we do a new song every week for an entire year. That's the commitment. And you make a short video and put it out there on Facebook. Am I right? Well, we put them out on YouTube. We had a YouTube channel. That's right. Yeah. And I think she also posted them to our Facebook page as well. Okay. But that's where I got all the songs for Low Tide, doing those challenges. That's right. And because I'm such a procrastinator, most of them are written in like (laughs) two hours. So... Amazing. So in fact, without you even knowing it, there may be a new Tracy Grammer album coming out in the next year or two. That would be amazing. We're due. That's what I learned from that project is that I'm not one of those writers, like if you give me all the time in the world, that's not what I need. I need a tight container. Pressure. Yeah, I need the pressure and I need the accountability. And then somehow the inspiration hits and you just run with it because you have to. I could ask you a million other questions. Maybe when the memoir comes out, we'll have you back on. That would be fun. If it ever comes out, I got to say, I've been working on it since 2007. So, (laughs) Oh, there's that. (laughs) Well, chop, chop. Chop, chop. That's right. And where can people find you on the web? I am at Tracy Grammer. That's E-R, tracygrammer.com. And then, of course, I have a lovely Instagram where I post my nature photos and pictures of my lovely cat and then Facebook. Awesome. Tracy, well, thank you so, so, so much for spending time with us on FolkPod. It's just so much fun to talk with you always. I really could ask you a whole bunch more questions, but we'll save it for uh, part two. Part two, when we sing Calypso together for the outro. Yes, yes, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) We'll have to work it up. Awesome. Thank you, Tracy Grammer. (laughs) Thank you, Cheryl. We'd go down for karaoke and kamikazes, and I would sing my one song, and I would get, like, super drunk, and then we would stumble home, which was like a quarter mile away, you know. Oh, my goodness. I just found the title for this podcast, Shauna. Karaoke and kamikazes. (laughs) Karaoke's and kamikazes. I am literally holding a pen. I'm literally writing it down. Sean has been great about finding the title in the conversation of things that I don't even remember we said. It's just been so great. That is so funny. That's the line. (laughs) Sorry. Do go on. FolkPod is a production of Long Story Short with me, Cheryl Prashker, your host, producer, and lead schmoozer, and Shauna Boniface, creator, producer, and editor. Like and subscribe to FolkPod wherever you get your podcasts. And please give us five stars on iTunes. It really helps raise our profile for more listeners. Catch us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at The Folk Pod. Thanks for listening and hope to see you next time.